0: Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I need your help on so many levels this morning. Uh, You know what the week looked like. You know what the preparation process was. And I ask, Lord, that you would take a few loaves and a couple fish and multiply bread for your people. Lord, I thank you so much that you are anxious to bring power and help to those who trust you from your word. I believe and do not doubt that you can do more than ever. I would ever imagine with these next few moments. And so, come, please, and attend the preaching of your word with power. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the gift of illumination. Help us to see as beautiful what might have been boring. Help us to find ourselves right at the feet of our Savior, even as we allot territory after territory in ancient Israel. I pray, Father, that you would do something extraordinary with these next few moments. I'm banging on it that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please join me in opening a Bible to the book of Joshua this morning? Joshua, beginning in chapter 13, and verse 1. Joshua, chapter 13, verse 1. It's page 188 in those red Bibles that are underneath the chairs, if you'd like to lay hold of one of those red Bibles. Page 188, Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Well, three weeks ago, we studied the seriousness of sin, That's Joshua chapter 7. Two weeks ago, we considered the insidiousness of sin, Joshua chapters 8 and 9. Last week, our focus was on the mortification of sin, Joshua chapters 10 to 12. I hope that you see the connectedness of those messages, the, the order in which they come in the book of Joshua. Another way to say it is this. In view of sin's seriousness, aware of sin's insidiousness, we want to become a people who are learning together how to mortify it, how to hate and to hunt our sin. As we said last week, um, how to so weaken and enfeeble our sin, that we have it regularly beat into a poor corner of our lives so that holiness can thrive. That's the goal. This week is the second to the last week together in the book of Joshua, and it's our fourth and final week on the topic of sin. I can already imagine objections emerging already because they emerge in my own heart as i prepare them four sermons in a row on sin I'm starting to get sin fatigue how about you maybe we should lighten up a little and i i hear that because those are objections that i have as i conceive of preaching these sermons imagine preaching them but my answer to those objections is that only a sinner would say such things. I also want to take the bait, though, in this sense, and ask the question, what if we don't learn about the dimensions of sin together? What if we do not pursue the mortification of sin as a congregation? Let's just say that I'm not particularly interested in killing my sin. What then? Well, once again, in the words of John Owen, if you will not be killing your sin, your sin will be killing you. To put it in the words of today's big idea, if you have been saved by the grace of Christ, your indwelling sin doesn't exempt you from striving to enter into the rest of God. Now, even how that phrase falls on your ears is going to be revealing of your spiritual condition. Listen to the big idea again. Does this threaten you or thrill you? It could go either way. If you have been saved by the grace of Christ, your indwelling sin doesn't exempt you from striving to enter into the rest of God. I can imagine that one way that could sound like a threat. On the other hand, that could be a thrilling Invitation to enter into the presence of God, sinner though we be. Three points today on the nature of indwelling sin. I'll give all of them up front to us. Got this phrase in italics here from John MacArthur. You know that you are a Christian not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. So don't be afraid. To, number one, Face the reality of indwelling sin. Face the reality of indwelling sin. Number two, fight the remainders of indwelling sin. Fight the remainders of indwelling sin. And third and finally, flee to your refuge from indwelling sin. Flee to your refuge from indwelling sin. You know you're a Christian, not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. So number one, don't be afraid to face the reality of your indwelling sin. Look with me now at Joshua chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all of those of the Geshurites from Shihar, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Goth, and Ekron, and those of Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Labo all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mizraphath Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. First thing that caught my eye as I was studying this, I heard some giggles, and I know it's caught yours. Verse 1, Joshua was old and advanced in years, so the Lord reminds him of that. You are old and advanced in years, and there yet remains very much land to possess. King James is old and stricken in years. Lots of land to possess. The west coast along the Mediterranean, all in enemy hands. The southern wilderness, the desert, all in enemy hands. The northern mountains under enemy control. You can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 8 that we have retreated to so many times over this sermon series. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Verse 11 in Joshua or Hebrews 4. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We need to remember that the author of Hebrews reminds us that there's a spiritual dimension for us to explore here in the book of Joshua. Of course there is. There's application for our souls here. To be a Christian, especially to be an aging Christian, of which we all qualify to one degree or another, can't stop time. To be a Christian is to realize that we live all of our lives, in one sense, in the already and in the not yet. So very many things in Christ are already chosen before the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. You are loved by God. You've been given new birth. You've been justified. You've been adopted into the family of God. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit if you know Jesus. Union with God and communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are already, they are yours. A present possession for you. But, like Joshua, you also live in the not yet. For you and for me, there remains yet very much land to possess. Think about your life. Growth in godliness. Depth in your knowledge of God. Greater and greater degrees of Integrity as it relates to your walk with the Lord. Who you are when no one's looking as it relates to Christian character. The promise one day of full and entire sanctification. Complete Christ-likeness in every corner of your mind and your heart and your mouth and your actions. And then, of course glorification the moment where all of it comes to a head when Jesus returns and we receive our glorified bodies and the process is complete. All of that, not yet. There remains very much land to possess. That's why verse 6 is so significant. God says to Joshua, I myself will drive them out. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I've commanded you. Do you believe Philippians 1.6? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Senior member of our congregation who went to be with the Lord last Summer, Lou Bryce, that was one of her favorite verses. She was old and advanced in years, and God brought that reality to completion. And one day it will be complete when she is raised from the grave. Don't be afraid to face the reality of indwelling sin, there remains much land yet to possess. Secondly, though, fight the remainders of indwelling sin. Fight the remainders of indwelling sin. You know you're a Christian, not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. So don't be afraid to fight. It's one thing to recognize indwelling sin. It would be an error to make peace with indwelling sin. Now in Joshua thirteen six, God says, I myself will drive them out. The word that he uses here, the, the verb to dry, drive out," it means to, "to dispossess, to drive out." It's the very same phrase that we will see crop up over and over again as we kind of range over chapters 13 to 22. So Joshua thirteen thirteen. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Makkah dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Joshua fifteen sixty three. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, did not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Joshua 16.10, however, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day and have been made to do forced labor. Joshua 17, verses 12 to 13, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. And there is an eerie uh, fulfillment of these texts one book later in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1 verse 21. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived within the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. We see it once again, with the tribe of Zebulun in Judges one thirty, we see it again with the tribe of Asher in verses 31 and 32 of Judges 1. And then finally, in Judges chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, "'Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive them out before them the nations.'" That Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. What happened? Doesn't Joshua 13.6 say that God himself would drive them out Yes, he said it to Joshua, who was about to go the way of all the earth. But what so many Israelites concluded is what so many American Christians conclude. If God is willing to drive out the Canaanites in my heart, for example, then why don't I just let go and let God? And it's a deadly calculation just to demonstrate the way that this does not have to be the fate of God's people, the Holy Spirit gives us the story of a particular man in Joshua 14, and his name is Caleb. Joshua 14, verses 6 to 15. As all the land is allotted out, sprinkled into this narrative for our help and encouragement is the story of one man, the story of Caleb. His request and his inheritance reads this way. Joshua 14, verses Verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Japhonah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be forever an inheritance for for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. Just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength is now as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities, that it it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said." Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath-Arabah. Araba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Verses 11 and 12 are proof of positive that Caleb did not let go and let God. Caleb trusted God and got going. Chapter 14, verse 11. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength is now as it was then for war, for going and for coming. So now here's the, here's the two-part uh, dynamic in verse 12. So now give me this hill country, which the Lord spoke to me on that day. For you heard On that day, how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities, it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. The Lord had promised, and yet he didn't take it as a reason to let up on his quest for the inheritance. The Apostle Paul says, as much in 1 Corinthians 15:10. God's grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God working in me. Trust God and get going. We have indwelling sin, there is much land to possess. And so we need to see that this dynamic can be ours as well. It reminds me of something that Charles Bridges wrote about our work and God's work as we think about sanctification. Listen to this. Shall we then indolently wait until God works? Far from it. We must work, but independence on him. He works not without us, but with us, through us, in us, by us, and we work in him. Ours is the duty, his is the strength. Ours is the agency. His is the quickening life. His commands do not imply our power to obey. I want to say that again. I've quoted this before. God's commands do not imply our power to obey, but our dependence upon Him for the grace of obedience. The work, as it is a duty, is ours, but the performance, as it is God's, he gives what he requires. His promises are the foundation of our performances. His promises are the foundations of our performances. Caleb believed that. Joshua did not have to ask Caleb what he asked individuals in Joshua 18:11. I'm sorry, 18:3. Joshua 18:3 Joshua says to the people of Israel, "How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land?" which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you. You feel the dynamic again? It's yours. Go get it. So we ought to fight the remainders of indwelling sin in our lives. One, one challenge for us this week would be to take a look at the, uh, the community group uh, study guide that you have inside your outline. All of it comes from the pen of John Owen. I've been dropping Owen quotes here and there, but I want you to see In your own eyes in black and white, how good and helpful his sage wisdom is. All of it is relating to this topic of indwelling sin. What it means to enter in to the inheritance that God is giving to you. All of it given to encourage you to fight the remainders of indwelling sin. Don't make peace with the sin that dwells within. So you know you're a Christian, not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. So don't be afraid, secondly, to fight the remainders of indwelling sin. And one more point, and this ought to be encouraging. Main three. Flee to your refuge from indwelling sin. Flee to your refuge from indwelling sin. What is indwelling sin? Owen defined it this way. A powerful and effectual principle that constantly inclines and presses and works toward evil. If you are a Christian, that's what you have in your heart. A powerful and effectual force, a principle, a reality that constantly inclines, presses, and works toward evil. Now it's not native to who you are in Christ. In Christ you're a new creation. Old is gone, new is come. But the old man, the flesh, still lives. It's no wonder that Owen would write in another place, Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. That is so true. We, we rarely consider the liability that we are to ourselves, to our families, to churches that would have us as members. That's frightening. So you might ask, is there ever any rest from this? Is there relief from this war? Well, there's heaven for which I hope you are homesick. We are citizens of heaven, another city whose architect and builder is almighty God. We ought to be homesick. But short of our heavenly rest, short of that not yet, there is earthly refuge. There is the already. And it's prefigured by a reality that existed in ancient Israel, and it's described in chapter 20. I'll invite you to turn there. Joshua chapter 20. Verses 1 to 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, appoint cities for refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of the cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give, him up, to the man, give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment." Until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his town, in his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Aruba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness, on the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Earthly refuge already. What are these cities of refuge all about? We, we could continue to read in chapter 21 about the Levitical cities, 48 cities where the priests were going to be given land as well. There is an intimate connection between the cities where the priests lived and the cities of refuge. There were 48 Levitical cities. Six of them were dedicated as cities of refuge. So why, why cities of refuge? You see it there in the text, but some of it's also in the the Old Testament uh, before this. One reason is to protect unintentional offenders from suffering needlessly. Um, In ancient Israel, they didn't have the judicial system that we have today, and so it was common, in fact, it was commanded for the avenger of blood of the family to uh, avenge the death of a loved one, Uh, had the loved one fallen into the hands of someone else. Leviticus 25, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 19 all describe this. So to protect the unintentional offender, someone who by mistake murdered someone, could go to a city of refuge and find protection. It's also, I think, The cities of refuge were set up to protect the the unintentionally offended from suffering needlessly. The the presence of the person, the reminder of the person among them day in, day out wasn't there. The person was kept in a city of refuge and a reminder that they had unintentionally, though they did it, had uh, killed a family member. Uh, The offended didn't have to suffer needlessly too. I think another reason for the cities of refuge was because it gave... An opportunity for the Lord to preach the preciousness of human life to him. Unintentional homicide earned exile. Can you believe it? Unintentional homicide earned exile. How much more intentional homicide? We no longer have cities of refuge among God's people. But we have something even more profound. We have a Savior who is our refuge. The scriptures point to the Savior all along. In the Psalms, Psalm chapter 5, verse 11, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing forever for joy. And spread your protection over them, those that love in your name, that they may exalt in you. Or Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 73, verse 28. But for me, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And then maybe the great refuge chapter in the Psalms is Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Psalm 91, verses 9 and 10, because you have made the Lord God your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. And all along, the Old Testament, and uniquely the Psalms, they point to God's Son, to the Messiah, the final shape, the final form that our refuge takes. So Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the one place in the New Testament that speaks of refuge, wouldn't you believe it, is the book of Hebrews that has provided so much backdrop for our study of Joshua over this last season. Hebrews 6, verse 18 we have fled for refuge that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And that refuge is in Christ. He is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. We sang it just before the sermon. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? And to you, he has said, to you who for refuge, to Jesus, have fled. How do you get to Jesus from cities of refuge? Well, in principle, cities of refuge were set up in ancient Israel uh, geographically. All of those who lived within the bounds of Israel, whether they were native to Israel or not, uh, could take advantage of cities of refuge. It was for unintentional sins. And the city of refuge, you were dismissed from the city of refuge when the high priesthood came to an end, when it changed hands. Christ is a far greater refuge. Think about it. Cities of refuge existed only within the geography of ancient Israel. Jesus promises, I am with you always. Even to the very end of the age, I will never leave you. Or forsake you the cities of refuge were for unintentional sins only only sins that happen by mistake Jesus is a different kind of refuge he's refuge not merely for unintentional sins but willful sins sins of omission willfully yes and sins of commission willfully the cities of refuge in the old testament you were dismissed when the high priest changed hands not so with jesus jesus our refuge says in john 6:37 all who come to me i will never cast out it's stunning really flee to your refuge from indwelling sin If you have been saved by the grace of Christ, your indwelling sin doesn't exempt you from striving to enter into the rest of God. You know you're a Christian, not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. So don't be afraid. Look it square in the face. Find out what's left. Face the reality of indwelling sin. Fight the remainders by God's grace of indwelling sin. And lastly, flee to your refuge the Lord Jesus himself from indwelling sin. We have one more sermon next week and we'll finish the book of Joshua. We'll look at Joshua's farewell to the people in Joshua 23 and 24 and I invite you to come back to wrap up this incredible book of scripture then. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We are grateful that you have shown us, Lord, you've shown us so very much over these last months in the book of Joshua. Lord, as we think about the seriousness of sin, the insidiousness of sin, what it looks like to put a full court press on sin and to see it weaken and gradually go the way of all the earth in our lives, Lord, we are, we are motivated as we think about what will happen if we don't. Lord, we will we will play out the parable of ancient Israel who refused to drive out the Canaanites in the land that was given to them to possess. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be people who make peace with sin. How could we? How could we make peace with the very thing that you died for? So, Lord Jesus, as you have borne our penalty, would you increasingly free us from sin's power? We look forward to that day in the new heavens and new earth when you return that we will be freed from sin's very presence. Oh God, rattle us awake. Cause your word to go into parts of our lives that we maybe even until now have not been willing to open up to you and help us to find our refuge in you, Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.